Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've really been looking forward to today's episode, where we're going to be focusing on a topic that's been of particular importance over the last year or so, how we can deal more effectively with major life disruptions of various kinds. This includes what we can do to limit the negative impact of these events, find the opportunities that might be present inside major moments of change, and even get the most out of disruptions that are positive. What can we do to really integrate those when something good actually happens to us in this often challenging life? So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, and I'm somehow thinking of this famous, highly regarded, revered Japanese Zen master who, toward the end of his life, was asked what he made of it looking back. Hmm. And he shook his head with a bemused smile and said, one mistake after another. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great framework for the conversation. One mistake after another. And then what do you do about it, right? Like, how do you cope with that one mistake after another? So In a beautiful, wonderful life. Yeah, Yeah. amidst a beautiful, wonderful life. And what can we do about all of that? So that's what we're going to be exploring today, (laughs) that uh, that Zen koan you started us with there. So before we get into it, I do want to talk about something else that has been consuming my life, I think it's fair to say, over the last month or so. I would agree. Yeah, yeah, I've been been (laughs) neck deep in it at the very least, and we might be getting up to my eyeballs at this point. But it's the Life After COVID Summit. It's going to air from May 21st to May 23rd. If you haven't heard about it yet, this is a free online summit that we're doing, that I'm doing. We're bringing in a group of fantastic guest experts to talk about a wide variety of topics having to do with how we can prepare ourselves for whatever the world looks like when we start to re-enter it over the next month, six months, year, six years, who the heck knows here. But at some point in the future, we are going to be coming out of this whole thing. And I think that it's just an enormous opportunity to ask ourselves, how do we want to be inside of that new context? Like, what do we want to get, if anything, out of this whole period of enormous disruption, which not entirely coincidentally is the subject of our conversation today. So what do you think about all of this, Dad? Well, first, I think it's an extremely important topic. Yeah. These cycles we all go through of organization, disorganization, reorganization. It's a normal part of life. And sometimes those cycles, though, are really intensified by abnormal events, like the arrival of a plague sweeping through the world these days. Yeah, totally. So we're all going to face these cycles. And the question is, how can we come through them as well as possible Mm -hmm. and even rise like the proverbial phoenix out of the (laughs) flames of disaster? Yeah, totally. So to get into just a little bit of the kind of more logistical information here, again, May 21st to 23rd, it's totally free. It's probably going to be made freely available even for a couple of days after the weekend. It's 11 conversations with different people who 
are frankly just like some of the most knowledgeable people in the world about these topics. I think that that's really fair to say. You've got a bunch of world-class folks for us. Yeah, it's really cool. You want to name a few? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we got uh, Steve Porges. So yeah, Dr. Stephen Porges is doing it. Dr. Steve C. Hayes is doing it. He's the founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. These are a lot of people that we've had on the podcast in the past. We've got Dr. Bruce Perry, Nedra Tawab, Sharon Salzberg. Uh, you're doing it for some reason. I, I snuck you in there, Dad. I kind of made it happen. Lori Gottlieb. So just all these people that I've been so happy to talk to on the podcast in the past and some of like my all-time favorite guests, some of my all-time favorite conversations. And it's just really cool to be doing it again with them. It's it's video and audio. It's not going to be just an audio format. And it's been a huge amount of work, frankly, pulling all of it together, but it's a huge offering. It's really cool stuff. I'm really happy with it. We're also going to be doing a live Q&A each day over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. I know that there are people who can't make it live. I'm sorry about that. But after the live thing goes up, we'll be posting the recording of it immediately afterwards. So everyone will have access to it, even if you can't join it live. So yeah, that's the summit. Uh, You can go to covidsummit.net. I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. It's really easy to find. It's easy to find on your website and it's easy to register for. And then we just send you all the stuff and hopefully you enjoy it. Well, great. I'm also really proud of you, Forrest, for pulling this together. Well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. The quality level, because I've seen some of the videos now, the quality level is just fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. No, I really earnestly appreciate that. Yeah, it's been kind of a cool arts project in addition to being a content project. So that's been great. Okay, so all that preamble about the summit out of the way, I want to get into our topic for today's conversation. We generally focus on the costs of major life disruptions. And that makes total sense. We've had a long, challenging year here. Most everyone has had a lot of costs that have come out of the last year. And I think it's important to start in the reality of that, in the grounding of that, in the truth of that, in the pain and suffering that happens during periods of disruption. Mm. But is it all just paid is the immortal question, right? Like what opportunities do you think can be present there as well? Well, you have pointed out many times the opportunities in the difficulties. And Hmm. I go back to this just fact in biology and also in our own personal life course. Really simple. Organization, disorganization, reorganization. It's just this ongoing process. There's no way around it. And, And I think it's really important, too, to build on something you routinely emphasize, which I've really appreciated from you, Forrest, which is Hmm. to really make sure that you and I are attentive to the ways in which we're talking from a fairly advantaged, privileged position. Yeah, totally. That enables us to ride the waves of difficulty, you know, relatively advantageously mm-hmm. in contrast to people who are systematically disadvantaged yeah. structurally through society in, frankly, ways that their disadvantages become advantages for others like you and me. Totally. And yep. in other words, we're, even though we're going to talk about how to, best cope with difficulties and best come out of those difficulties, none of that in any way, shape, or form is meant to be some kind of underestimating Mm. of those difficulties Mm -hmm. or glossing over them or trying to say, oh, just look in the bright side, you'll be fine. Zero, zero, zero of any of that sort of thing. It's really with kind of massive respect for suffering and in a way respect for the dignity of people who are grappling with enormous kinds of suffering and, you know, putting one foot in front of the other one, one breath at a time. 
So that's really a deep frame here I wanted to say up front. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Kind of with that as the context for everything that we're talking about today, I do think that there is an inherent dynamism in moments of disruption. And yes, a lot of that comes from the suffering that's associated with them. That is, again, the context that we're living in here. But in the conversations that we've had that have been focused on self-change, identity change, growing the good inside of your life, one of the things that we say over and over again is that we are very good at habituating ourselves into certain patterns of behavior. Sometimes this is because like our social structures hold us inside of a certain identity and the world pushes back when we try to change. Sometimes it's because we just get comfortable mm. and we look around and we go, hey, you know, it's like lukewarm bathwater to use the analogy that you, you used wonderfully with me once. Like you're having a good enough time to not get out of it, but you're not necessarily deeply fulfilled by it. And in that moment of standing up from the lukewarm bathwater, yeah, there's some shock, there's some discomfort there, but there is nonetheless this opportunity to find something better, to find something new. And I do think that that's just really fundamentally true, that moments of change and disruption give us this opportunity for reevaluating ourselves that we don't always have when we're just living in the world of pleasant homeostasis. Yeah, I think people can often be shocked to realize how much what seemed to them self-evident as who they are or how to be is actually the result of their interaction with their environments. Mm -hmm. And their environments, particularly other people as an environment, are maintaining a kind of script that we routinely just kind of fall into. I'll, I'll give you two quick examples. Great, yeah. One example was when I was 15, as you know, uh, just actually 14, our whole family moved to Finland, where I lived for the school year there. I was a junior in high school and went to this Swedish language boys' school. It was all really different. And what blew my mind was the degree to which, since I had stepped out of all these peers, and even my parents' lives were somewhat disrupted. So there was a disruption, a disorganization of my previous social environment in a conventional American suburban public high school. And also there was kind of a disruption in, in my parents' activities. They were more engaged with other things. There was kind of more room to breathe suddenly. And for all those reasons, I was able quite quickly to become a different person than I'd been in my previous scripts, which was for me becoming a much more authentic and happy and confident and feeling adequate kind of person because my environment had changed. Okay, so that was an example of the ways in which, you know, you step out of your familiar environments and you can really grow. And yeah. that's one of the things that happens, you know, when things are disrupted, our social circumstances, our financial circumstances often are changed and that creates opportunity even amidst, and not trying to paper it over, but even amidst the losses. Yeah, and I think that much as you're giving these very lived experience in the world examples that I think we all have, I think that most people have had an experience in their life of things going really poorly and something good coming out of it. Yeah. I also think that people have probably had the example of feeling like all the things were set up for success and yet for some reason things went poorly anyway. So we got those like two contrasting points there. Another way to think about this is much more theoretically in terms of these various developmental theories that exist in psychology around positive growth and change. And there are plenty of theories that claim very different things, and you can kind of cherry pick whatever you want from psychology here. 
So don't take this as rote. These are just kind of two examples. The first is something called the theory of positive disintegration. I'm going to mess the name up here, but it's by Kazmierz Dabrowski, I believe is how you say it. He's a Polish psychologist, and he was around kind of World War I, World War II era. And basically what he saw is he saw people coming out of these intense, horrible conflicts. The two world wars, just horrible things happening to people. And what he found was that just looking around, there were some people who were kind of able to integrate and repair and grow and move on, and some people who weren't able to do that. And he basically asked himself, hey, why is this? These days, with a more modern approach, we would point to a lot of stuff that he did not point to, like social circumstances and whether these people were disenfranchised and the underlying genetic context and like all of that good stuff, because we know that genetic factors play a big role in things like resilience and all that good stuff. But he basically thought that it basically boiled down to the idea that discomfort is necessary for personal growth. And people who really experience a crisis in an emotionally intense and felt way tend to have a more personal relationship with that crisis. And when that happens, it leads to greater self-reflection, which then leads over time to the development of a more like fully formed sense of self. So that's just one example of a theory that basically says we need these challenging times in order for us to create the most fully fleshed out, fully realized version of the person that we want to be. Yeah, this is where I start to squirm a little bit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The kind of theory and the way I would I would put it, yeah, in my view, is that it has to do in part with our view of a normal human life. Yeah. What does a broadly normal, in other words, you know, the distribution, 90% of the population, let's call that the normal range, roughly. What does it tend to consist of? And in my view, it's helpful to regard a normal human life as naturally including a fair amount of difficulty, a fair amount of defeat, a fair amount of pain, of loss, of illness, of even mistreatment. And recognizing the normalcy of that is factual. It's descriptive. It's objective. It doesn't say that it's necessarily good or bad. It's just normal. And it is true, though, that if you regard your life as normally containing a fair amount of what the Buddha called the first darts of life, the inherent, inevitable, common, normal losses, pains, and difficulties of life. In an interesting kind of way, if you think of them as normal, then you tend to suffer them less and you tend to be more able to cope with them. Mm -hmm. You're less rattled by them. Mm -hmm. You're less likely to be even traumatized by them. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. You're prepared when you're getting out of the bathwater, right? You're like, it's going to be cold, so it feels less painful, totally. Exactly yeah. right. You don't necessarily have to add second darts to them of feeling somehow like, oh, this is wrong, or it shouldn't be happening to me, or somehow, oh, woe is my fault. Uh, there's kind of a line that came out of these Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander sailing novels that I really love. Basically, <laughs> one of the major characters in it is completely unjustly criticized and blasted mm. by his beloved mm. captain, one of the major characters. And finally, it becomes clear that this character named Charles has been unjustly accused by the captain. And so the captain then kind of humorously shrugs and says, well, you know, in this life, you're going to get mistreated a lot. So it might as well come from your friends. He <laughs> 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 kind of normalizes it in a funny kind of way. So I think that's, that's an important point, number one. 
So the question is, of course, how can we best manage normal range difficulties, which can be very, very difficult and painful, all right? How do we best manage them, point one? And point two, how can we grow as well from the everyday experiences of life, including many that are very positive? We can grow in both ways. Where I start to really squirm is in these theories of, you know, no pain, no gain. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Most pain has no gain. And most of our gains in life involve no pain. Mm -hmm. We were Mm -hmm. simply in situations where we got something done or we rose to an occasion or a beautiful thing happened between us and another person. Mm -hmm. We walked out, we looked at the sunrise, something really touched our heart. You know, many of these experiences, particularly if we take in the good, you know, gradually build positive resources inside us, including on overall global well-being. So we can grow both through pain and through Mm non-pain. I think there's certain kinds of people who, I don't know why, they're like professional Grinches, you know, (laughs) just claim (laughs) that the only way to grow is through suffering, no suffering, you know, no growth. And that's just dead wrong. Most suffering makes us weaker. Most, it, it tends to break us down. So it's important to not have a kind of casual, complacent attitude toward particularly unnecessary upset and stress. Yeah, I totally agree with the overall presence and content of what you're saying here, that for starters, I think that this almost segues us very naturally into a conversation about post-traumatic growth. Yeah, It's a phrase that gets tossed around sometimes, and it is profoundly fraught for all of the reasons that you're describing right now. But I also think that not to be one of those Grinches for a moment, but basically like there are some core conflicts that exist in life that everyone goes through. Yeah. And these are conflicts and conflict is like an okay word for it. There is this inevitable discomfort and a lot of our growth is determined by how we exit that conflict and we do so in a successful, positive way. Or do we get dragged down by it in the ways in which you're describing? The way that Dabrowski talks about it is in terms of like, okay, we have these core moments of struggle inside of our life. And a lot of the time we get identity externally initially, and then we start to create it more internally. And the conflict between what the external world is telling us and what we start to feel about ourselves Mm. inside as we create our individuated identity, that's what the conflict is. Mm. Another example of this is Eric Erickson, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past with the stages of psychosocial development to use a bunch of SIT words all in a (laughs) row. Um, But this is basically just a framework where there are these eight stages that we go through in life, and each of them has this core conflict, trust versus mistrust, intimacy versus isolation, whatever. And again, this is just kind of like a fancy psychologized way to talk about the normal stresses, the normal conflicts that people go through in the process of their life and the value that we can kind of get out of it over time. You know, from a practical standpoint, yeah. given that, in other words, to put it a certain kind of way, your picnic inevitably will get rained on someday, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. It will, it will happen. There will be, let's talk about some very common, practical, concrete events. Yeah, so let's go ahead. One is a major disruption in your country. It's interesting that, for example, in America, post-World War II, different historians have pointed out that it was an unusually halcyon period, a pleasant, easygoing, relatively peaceful and prosperous period for a whole generation or two of people that's fairly uncommon in the history of the world. And what's important is not to overgeneralize, for those of us, let's say, who are American and lived through that, 
that that's how it's always supposed to be. The truth is, a very routine event in a country is some kind of significant disruption. In a person's life, we have the normal developmental stages of adolescence, the transition to adulthood, leaving home, having your children leave home. It's very common also to have disruptions in major relationships. The de facto divorce rate is roughly two out of three. When you add to the 50% of legal marriages ending in a formal divorce, you add people who were legally married and they became functionally divorced, but for different reasons, tax purposes, whatever, they stayed legally married, or people who were functionally married. Let's say they had kids and owned property together, but then parted their ways. Well, if you throw those in as well, you're reaching roughly, you know, two out of three odds that people who walk down the, <laughs> the aisle will eventually, you know, come apart. So it's quite normal for major disruptions in relationships to occur. And mm -hmm. then you think about job losses or job changes or moving from one place or another. And then you think about major events like illness, injury is quite common, and then edging into old age and, and finally death. So these are major, major major difficulties often, or disruptions, certainly, they're normal. So if we're going to prepare for them, there are a couple of keys. One is to expect them, just like you said in the beginning, mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. a broad view that can regard these as quote unquote, first starts of life, but not necessarily more than that. They're not bad in some sense. They don't need to be unexpected when they finally do arrive. So that's one thing. And another is to really have a strong tendency that when challenges face you, rather than feeling immobilized and helpless and dead in the water when they happen, that there's a resourcefulness that is a personal characteristic that turns toward internal resources like mindfulness, self-compassion, emotional intelligence, different skills, attitude of you know self-respect and so forth, and also tends toward external resources, particularly reaching out to other people. So to the extent that people can cultivate those kind of qualities before the storm comes, that's going to increase your odds of being able to ride it out to a good place. I think that's a great point. It's a great starting place from which to interact with the negative experiences as they come up in life. It's tricky to talk about this one because it's something that we don't necessarily have a lot of control over. And it's something that I want to be a little careful around, but our social support systems, I think, make an enormous difference in our ability to weather troubling experiences. This could be family systems. It could be friend systems. It could be the relationship that you have with a pet. One of the people who I spoke to for the summit is Joanne Cacciatore, who does amazing work around grief. And she runs a care farm with all of these animals, all of these rescued animals on it. And people's relationships with these different animals can be an enormously healing part of the work that they do around recovering from challenging and traumatic experiences. So I think that a question to ask ourselves just in general in our interpersonal relationships is, hey, is this person gonna be there for me when stuff hits the fan? Is this somebody that I want to enter the foxhole with, to put it with some yeah. pretty loaded terminology? And an evaluation process that we can do with these different relationships is just getting real ahead of time around like, who are the people that you go to when things actually get tough? And, mm. and who are the people who are more, where your relationship with them is more built for the sunny days of life? No, I think that's one of the great lessons around COVID. It exposes the degree to which a person has or has not really filled up their inner cupboard mm. and their mm -hmm. external cupboard in a sense. 
because when the storm comes, it really exposes how resourced are you internally and also how much have you really invested in relationships that really matter Mm. Um, because that's what you got. You know, that's really what you got when things fall apart. What do you think tends to support people during a disruptive moment Yeah, in terms of either limiting its negative impacts or finding those more positive opportunities? I think people could talk about this in lots of ways. The way it lands for me that feels very experiential and kind of soulful, two aspects. The first aspect tends to be more toward the front end of the during. And then the second aspect I'll get to is more toward the back end of the during. They sort of mush together. In terms of the front end, it's to move back and forth between a personal view and an impersonal view, between the particulars of how this is landing on me and the generalities of the ways in which what's happening here actually happens for all kinds of other people. There's a common humanity in it, and it is happening due to a vast network of forces of kind of like a fabric with many, many threads. Only a handful of those threads have your own name tag on them. You're riding a wave, a very challenging wave that is particular, which is also uh, produced by the ocean altogether. So it's to move back and forth, and that might sound a little abstract, In the particular, is to really feel how, let's say, being suddenly laid off, maybe unjustly, is really affecting you. Or you discover there's a a betrayal in an important relationship that leads you to regard that relationship in a different kind of way. Or maybe you get a sudden diagnosis or the possibility of a diagnosis that is really alarming. Whatever it might be, you know, it's landing on you particularly. And it's important to be tender to yourself and with yourself about that, compassionate, honest, mindful about all the ways it really is landing. You know, that's the particular part, the unique aspects of it, to own them, to feel them, to stay with them. That's important, right? And then also, though, to kind of move outside of your own frame of reference, to shift from a self-referential perspective and, and kind of look at the situation from 30,000 feet, you know, the bird's eye view, where you can feel how what's happening to you has been suffered and dealt with by many, many other people, is being dealt with, things along these lines are happening to many other people as well. You're not alone. You're not alone in this. And there are sometimes universal or general kinds of wisdom that have been developed by the many, many people who've walked down this painful path ahead of you previously or are walking it with you these days, you know, when you go to the general and the impersonal. It can also help to appreciate borrowing some, you know, fundamental ideas in the in the wisdom traditions that what is happening that can feel really acute. And it's important to honor the ways it does feel acute for you particularly, still what is happening in terms of your experiences and what is happening in terms of the events that are causing your experiences and affected by your experiences, these are all dynamic, somewhat complicated, cloud-like, fluid processes rather than things that are static, stuck bricks, in a sense. And the recognition of what you're going through as linked to 
broader processes and the local expression of broader dynamic processes and networks of causes is not something philosophical. It actually can feel very embodied and tangible for you. You can feel it. And when you feel this broader general process, what's happening acutely doesn't land so hard. So that's that's that part. If I could keep going, I'll say in terms of the more, you know, the the later on in the in the during, you know, in the middle of it all, there's this fundamental process of releasing and replacing where you let go of what you got to let go of. You know, maybe you you have to let go of in a really horrible situation, a body part, or maybe you have to let go of a particular where you've lived or a title you've had or a position you've had. You have to let go of maybe a certain amount of sensory acuity you used to have. A friend of mine has had to face through, I think, progressive glaucoma, the loss of his eyesight in his 60s and all the impacts of that upon him. So we have to let go. And sometimes there are people that will never talk to us again for whatever reason and will not repair with us. We let go of that. Sometimes there's a letting go where you realize you just can't afford to do something like you used to. You can't afford to you know, rail at other people critically. You can't afford to drink like you used to or do other things like you used to. You just can't. You got to let it go. You got to let it go. You got to let it go. You got to release it. You got to exhale, right? And then as you move through the during and you, you, you also start focusing increasingly on what are you going to replace it with? What is the new that you are calling in? The new relationships you are forming with others as that space occurs through what you've released, something new can come in to replace it. New relationships with others, new situations, new, new kind of environments, new settings, new roles, and in particular, new ways of regarding yourself and experiencing yourself and prioritizing. New priorities start to develop. You release or you allow certain things to fall to the bottom of the priority stack while you start recognizing increasingly, oh, I need to replace what I've released as a high priority with different high priorities and make those increasingly the focus of my own life. Mm. You know, the classic metaphor to finish, I guess, of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. In the middle phase, right, in the cocoon, the chrysalis, it's a mess. <laughs> if you were to cut open a chrysalis halfway through the process, there'd be parts that look like a caterpillar, mm, parts that mm-hmm. look like a butterfly, and parts that just look like a gooey, disorganized mess. Mm, and mm-hmm. that's the nature of the process. But you can start to release the caterpillar and increasingly receive the butterfly. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. 
If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. Well, it's a lovely metaphor, I think, to kind of straddle the line between the during and the after, and maybe that'll kind of get us into the after naturally. As you're saying, often we go through stuff in life where we just need to get through it. Yeah, right on. Whether we're going through a breakup or we're going through some kind of a medical crisis or we lost a job, you just need to find a new job. You just need to move out of the house. You just need to get the person to the hospital. Like we move into a state of functionality. And I'm so glad you're adding this for us. Yeah. Um, action. Action, yeah. No replacement. We, we move into a state of function. And sometimes a high degree of emotional processing aids that function. It can happen, absolutely. But I would say a significant percentage of the time, maybe even most of the time, action is action. And the emotional side of it, the woe is me, the here are all the things I've lost, oh my God, I have to let go of all of this stuff that can actually impede the action in the moment because we can get so caught up in the very understandable psychodrama, but it's nonetheless the psychodrama part of it as opposed to the, okay, what are we now doing out in the world? And there are two parts of that. In the moment, action does have a wonderful interaction with anxiety where you feel like you're doing something and therefore sometimes the anxiety can decrease a little bit. Sometimes the suffering goes down when you feel like you're making positive moves, you're making positive changes, you are controlling what you can. I think about in the early part of COVID, how everyone was like washing their groceries and stuff when they got them home from the store. Uh, You know, as more evidence has come out, that's a little unclear how much that actually did. We know increasingly that COVID is an airborne virus. It probably wasn't like landing on stuff and getting, I mean, maybe for some people it did, but that wasn't the primary mechanism of transmission. But nonetheless, it was a thing to do. It made people feel like they were doing something. And maybe even just on that level, 
it could have a positive impact on people's lives. But okay, so we move through our action. Maybe we need to disassociate while it's happening. Maybe we need to kind of take those emotions and put them in a little box inside of our heads for a minute so we can do what we got to do out in the world. But then eventually we got to go back through the job of processing those emotions. And one of the most transformative for me parts of this whole process of getting into self-help work and doing the thinking that I've done about person change and self-change and self-identity transformation and all of that has been an increasing recognition of the truth that emotions don't go anywhere. If you felt an emotion, you felt it, and it's there until you do something about it most of the time. Maybe you felt it at a 10 in the moment, and it goes down to a 3 over time with memory inside of your subconscious, you know, whatever. But like, it's still there. It still becomes a part of you until you do something about it. And a lot of the time, we need to give ourselves the, I'm trying to look for the right word here, the gift, I guess. That's kind of a metaphor that I want to be, you know, that I think can be like a little trite. But like, we want to give ourselves the gift of allowing ourselves to complete a grief process Mm. around whatever happened, to fully feel our emotions, to you know, to use a metaphor we use on the podcast a lot, to empty the bucket of tears a spoonful at a time. And I think sometimes what happens with people, particularly people who are frankly kind of like me, who move into action and agency a lot, is that there's that movement in the moment of things happening toward agency. And then one thing leads to another, and you're just in the process. And you never go back and actually deal with the emotions that were happening at the time. And you see that over and over and over in therapy, where one of the primary things that happens inside of the therapeutic space is that people are given the opportunity to go back to those feelings, those thoughts, those experiences, and actually do something about them when they're no longer in the moment of suffering itself. And having that space can allow us to interact with that much more effectively. But that whole process, I think, is just like such a huge part of dealing with these moments of intense change. I'm very glad you talked about that for us. And it mm. just kind of touched that you're emphasizing that, mm. you know, certainly as someone who has huge strengths for rational analysis to <laughs> value really. Yeah. This aspect is, is really touching. Mm. For me, it's very true, 100% true what you're saying. I kind of related to that part I was talking about of the particular in the personal, mm-hmm. where you really mm-hmm. try to honor and make room for all of it. But certainly throughout the whole process, making room for how it really feels and going through how it really feels for you on your own timetable, mm-hmm. not letting other people, well-intended or not, hurry you along any faster than is your organic and often mysterious, mysterious rhythm. You'll feel sometimes that You've really handled it. You know, you've processed it. You've grieved it. You've gotten to the bottom of it. You journaled it. You talked to your therapist. You gave it over to God. You did it, right? Ha, 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 ha. And then something <laughs> happens. And you're like, whoa, there was a whole deeper uh, layer. What? Yeah, you know? for sure. For uh, sure. Yeah. It's like, whoa. And so. And, to, and to, just to, to pick up on that for one second, to not get discouraged by that. Right. Like, that's a normal thing yeah. that happens to people. And I cannot tell you the number of friends that I've had where they say to me some version of like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I did it. We we got to the end. We did. Wow. I feel so much better now. I'm so accomplished. I'm so together. I'm clear. And then I'm clear. And then something happens. Some incident happens. 
and the emotions come back. Yep. The quote unquote backsliding happens, but it's not backsliding. No. I promise you, it's not backsliding. It would have been- It's a deeper level. Yes, it's a deeper level. And whatever you're experiencing now would have been either so much worse or so much less good if you hadn't done the work the first time around. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the time we can really lose sight of that when we have that moment where like the cobwebs get kicked up again. Yeah. This may strike you as amusing or extraneous or both, I don't know. <laughs> but when I was a young whippersnapper, yeah. I don't know what, I, I read these like golden books about treasure hunting. And it told me about the historical event of, I believe a German archeologist, maybe late 1800s, discovering where the fabled city of Troy in the Trojan Wars actually was located, right? So nobody had been able to find it. And they didn't even know, was Homer just making it up in the Iliad? Did Was there actually Troy? So he dug around different places, very smart person, I forget his name. And he dug down like 20 feet and he found this amazing ancient Bronze Age city, 3000 years old. And he thought, whoa, this is Troy, great. But then he started exploring and he began to realize, hmm, not so sure, and he dug deeper. And there was another city beneath that city. And he said, this, this is Troy. Well, something like seven cities down, he finally found truly the original city of Troy. Mm. And I just think about that a lot as a weird, <laughs> I get it weird. It's a weird metaphor. No, I, I think it's a perfect metaphor, honestly. The layered nature of our psyche. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And having an appreciation for the depth and the breadth of that. Yeah. I think also to bring it back to our core topic here, can be insulating when we go through these challenging experiences because we don't assume that it's like one instrument. Yeah. You know, it's a whole orchestra. Yeah. There's all of this different stuff going on, and we can have a respect and an appreciation for all of the ways that the whole orchestra is happening as it's going on. Yeah. Two things I want to underline related to what you said is first, the primacy of action, mm -hmm. right? Do what you can inside your mind, out in the world. Do what you can. If you get a medical diagnosis, do what you can about it. You know, if you're suddenly realize that you're in a frame of divorce, do divorce well. It'll arguably won't be one of the major financial events in your entire life. Get good at divorce if you got a divorce. You know, if you get cancer, get good at having cancer. I don't mean this in any glib way. I've had to face certainly, you know, having had melanoma pulled out happily, but whatever it might be. Try to take the action that you can. There's just no replacement for that. A kind of plucky, gritty, steady, methodical, act as you can, as best you can, then go back to bed if you need to. You know, second key point, it's okay if it's ragged. And I, I think it's really important to appreciate the ways in which seemingly negative emotions like anger, outrage, fury can sometimes be necessary fuel for us, particularly in the early stages of dealing with a crisis. A cold rage is a reaction I had to visiting Haiti and seeing so much suffering and poverty there. And it has really mobilized me to be helpful in ways that are, that are within range for me. So it's easy sometimes, I think, for it to sound like, particularly when coming, let's say people like me, you know, psychologists trained, like the right way to do something, you know, it's kind of saturated with mainstream certain dominant paradigm values yeah, can make it sure. seem like, oh, it's got to look a certain way. It's got to be all kind of, you know, right out of yoga camp or something. But no, it often looks really ragged and it's okay 
that if you're ragged, it's okay to be ragged yourself if you're going through a raggedy time. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally great points. And I, I particularly love the one at the end where it's okay for this to suck for a while and it's okay yeah. for it to not look clean. And, and for you to not look clean. For you to not look clean while it's happening. You know, yeah. be, be kind of careful about the collateral damage around you, but sure. you know, yeah, maybe there's a place for being furious and maybe vengeful in a intermediate kind of motivation for yourself. If under certain really horrible situations, that's what you have to tap into mm. to get to the other side and bring others like your children sometimes along with you. Maybe that's what yeah. you need to do. Yeah. And I don't want to be too judgmental about it. Yeah. So I think that we've moved through the past and the present, if you will. That's right. The before and the during. Yeah. The before and the during. Are there things that you think really support people in whether it's kind of a recovery aspect or mm-hmm. it's getting the good out of these disruptive moments kind of in the aftermath to an extent? I mean, obviously, I want to be careful about this because we're certainly not yeah. complete with COVID by any stretch of the imagination. I don't want people to misunderstand me here. But I think that it's fair to say that at least in the United States, we are likely through the primary period with the mm-hmm. advent of vaccinations and similar. So for us, what do you think helps people integrate that disruption? Yeah. The transitions from before, during, and after are fuzzy. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so we're kind of talking about the tail end of during and the early mm-hmm. stages of after often, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Okay. That said, I think it's really helpful to mark whether you're still in it. And to face that, even though you're so eager to be done with it. So there are two kinds of mistakes we can make. One is we can think that we're in the after, but honestly, we're still in the during. Maybe we're in the tail end of the during, but you still got to deal with it. And I think about in wilderness and very like rock climbing, for example, most serious accidents happen on the way down. You think you're in the after, but you're still in the during. You're tired, it's late, it's cold, it's getting dark, and you're so eager to get down, it's easy to be sloppy and make mistakes. And that's when people die, for example. So it's really important to realize, maybe you're still in the during, maybe there's still some loose ends you really need to pin down and take good care of. The other mistake to make is to think that you're still in the during when honestly, the war is over. There's a truce now. Pieces have been declared. We're moving into a normalization of relations. You're out of that situation. You got out of that train wreck. You've been putting daylight between you and the train wreck day after day after day now for many months, if not years in a row. And it's okay to let it sink in. Ha, huh, the war's over. You crossed over to safety. You're in the new, the truly new normal. You've made that transition. You don't need to keep fighting the last war. You don't need to keep armoring yourself and guarding yourself because you still think that you're in the middle of a war zone. You're no longer in that situation. You got out of that job, got out of that relationship. You've resolved whatever you can do with regard to this illness, and you're in a different kind of framework in your life. So I think it's very important to those two things right off the top. Another thing is classically, is to extract meaning and to do a process, which often occurs in a spiraling kind of way, repetitively, where you move through different aspects of the situation more and more deeply, a kind of spiraling down into the depth of meaning and in a way spiraling up into a far-reaching release. And you reflect on it. Huh, what are my lessons to learn? Like, what are the takeaways here? 
do's and don'ts. From now on, I want to be much more alert, let's say, about a certain kind of person to be in a romantic relationship with. Or from now on, I've learned what are the characteristics of a job that are really well-suited to me and supportive of me, fertile ground, really, Mm -hmm. for my gifts. From now on, you know, what are my takeaways about health practices I really want to do? Flip the other way, from now on, what are certain things I'm just not going to do? I'm not going to blindly trust people in certain ways. I'm not going to blindly tell certain kinds of people certain things about me before I really, really know I can trust them with it. Mm. You know, I'm not going to invest my money mm-hmm. in certain kinds mm-hmm. of things. I'm not going to drink or smoke like I used to. I'm going to make real changes here. You know, what are those actionable takeaways for you? And then more broadly, what are the meanings that you can extract from this about life, existential reflections, broad-reaching understandings about other people. One of the things that I've come to realize when I look out into the world is just as a factual statement, you know, we could summarize history in two sentences, basically. Mm -hmm. Many people often doing horrible things to many other people, period, with some notable exceptions. (laughs) Yeah, many people disappoint. In your personal relationships, many people will not do the right thing if it's a hard thing. And that's just kind of true. So that's maybe one kind of reflection. Another kind of meaning is how you regard yourself. And this is where I think it's very important without getting arrogant or conceited about it to really emphasize and lean toward, incline your mind toward acknowledging yourself, Mm -hmm. recognizing the strengths you tapped into to get through this, recognizing that you survived it by definition because you're on the other side, even if it was raggedy and raggedy is normal, no shame in raggedy, it's normal, you know, and to appreciate and to feel a sense of dignity and uprightness and Mm -hmm. self-respect that you got through it. What, you know, how can, can you feel good about yourself? Can you feel better about yourself Mm -hmm. in ways that are legitimate, in ways that are really, really deserved, alongside maybe some appropriate remorse or regret about certain things that you're going to make amends and repair as best you can and also extract lessons from as best you can? Okay, those are real. But alongside that, this feeling of dignity and uprightness and self-respect. Yeah, for me, the one that stands out in in terms of my own process has been sort of what you were talking about there for a second around this this muscular orientation toward your own change mm. and having a question in your mind when it's appropriate for you, when you've moved through the grief process or are working inside of it, yeah. when you're out of the immediate blast radius of the thing that happened, yeah, things are safe, circumstances are getting stable, okay. Where you have this real question about how do I want to be now? Yep. And you really think about it in a deep way, in a way where like you don't have to be the way that you were. And for me, that is the most radical moment a person can have with themselves. Honestly, like the most radical form of transformation. It's talked about in many of the contemplative traditions. It's talked about in the psychological traditions. It's talked about all the time where you have a moment where you just say, how do I want to be? And you believe that you can change it. And the second part is the critical part because a lot of people have a moment where they ask, how do I want to be? But not as many people think they can actually change it. And 
you can. You just can. We know that you can. Yes. You can go in a really deterministic direction about this thing. Yeah, sure. But based on all the research that is out there in psychology, we know that people can change aspects of self-identity well yeah. into adulthood at this point. And I just think that that is such like a necessary condition. It might not be a sufficient condition if you want to use that language, but it's such a necessary condition yeah. for any kind of positive growth and integration after something bad happens. Yes, it works is when it's within reach. In yeah, other words, totally. and you can feel it. You can feel, oh, a way of being is increasingly available to me. And so then the existential question that you're highlighting becomes, am I willing to let go of the old and am I choosing to establish myself in the new? It's very sacred. It's very fundamental. I think broadly about being what we want to become, or to put it a certain kind of way differently, but to say the same thing, taking the fruit as the path, the fruit being what we want to become and helping ourselves be in it as much as we can. Mm. Another version of this is be the change you seek, right? Mm -hmm. Being what you want to become. And I think that's maybe a way to kind of finish here. It's like helping yourself live into being the butterfly when that's actually available to you. Yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor. I like the metaphor of that a lot. And I've also had an increasing appreciation, quite possibly just due to Elizabeth, my partner, who is training to be a somatic psychologist, of the ways in which these things are a felt sense. Yes. Yes, they can be intellectual. As you said earlier, I am a very rational, intellectual person. I have aha moments that are purely intellectual in nature. But a lot of the time with a lot of this stuff, there is a resonance that happens inside of the body. Yeah. There is a feeling space where you just, you literally feel it somewhere where you go, oh, this has a different sensation associated with it. Is Am I operating from a sensation of contraction or am I operating from a sensation of openness? And the more attuned that we become to the places that these sensations live inside the body, the better that we can get about opening up around them, relaxing, and to extend your metaphor, relaxing into the butterfly, if you will, uh, which is not my conventional language, but I appreciate that you used it there, Dad. I thought it was lovely. Every kite needs someone holding the string. That's me. I am the string holder. I am moored to the earth while you fly high above. So, okay. I, I think that that's it for today's well, episode. Can I, can what I a lovely conversation. That? Yeah, please. Let me, let me add. No, I said, well, first of all, I'm, I'm holding your strings to some oh, extent. Okay, so okay, great, with, great, great, great. Yeah. In different ways I for you. I fly high as well. In, in your kite likeness. Uh, <laughs> and I want to return, maybe as we finish, kind of as a wrap up, but we might well do another podcast entirely on this. Mm. This whole notion of, as you said, the felt sense. Eugene Gendlin with Focusing talked about the felt sense in the body. Mm. Antonio Damasio talked similarly about somatic markers. Mm -hmm. In other mm -hmm. words, the underlying pattern of sensation or action, which could be very subtle, that is associated with the emotion track and the cognitive track of a particular Jung called them complexes or ways of being or attitudes or particular sort of uh, granular parts of yourself. Point being that I find it really helpful to be mindful of patterns of subtle contraction or sensation in the body mm -hmm. that underlie, and because they're so primary, anchor mm 
mm. and mm-hmm. uh, neurotic ways of being broadly less functional less happy less effective ways of being that what's that feeling of like contraction in your body when you feel hurt and overwhelmed and immobilized sad worthless and helpless mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're just left behind and the whole tribe is walking on without you Ugh. what's that feel like in the body or when you're resentful or carrying a grudge toward another person What's the particular sensation pattern that anchors it? Flip the other way as we finish here in terms of helping yourself be what you want to become. It's to be aware of what does it feel like to take the higher road or to operate in this other way? What does it feel like in your body to be a little more Mm butterfly-ish and a little (laughs) less caterpillar-ish? What's that feel like? And then can you pay attention to that and reinforce it and take in the good, you know, establish it, install it uh, into yourself so it becomes increasingly habitual Mm, and hardwired mm -hmm. into your own nervous Mm -hmm. system as this new somatic marker, the new felt sense of being who you want to become. Yeah. Yeah. Great way to say it. And I think a really good note to kind of wrap our conversation today on. Great. So today, Rick and I focused our conversation on cycles of disintegration and then integration. What can we do to limit the negative impact of majorly disruptive life events? And how can we find the opportunities that might be present inside those major moments of change? We started with the context of the conversation as a whole, which is that, broadly speaking, pain, not so great for you. There are a lot of people who, as Rick said, take a kind of Grinch-like mentality to this whole thing, where we have to suffer in order to grow. But we know, based on a huge amount of research, that broadly speaking, this just isn't true. Most of the time, more often than not, painful experiences wear us down, trauma is bad for us, regardless of what anyone says about post-traumatic growth or whatever else. These experiences do not support our flourishing. But that being said, we're all going to experience major life disruptions through the course of our lives. It's just part of being human. And when we do experience those disruptions, our course in life is going to be dictated largely by our ability to integrate them, to grow after them, and to create a life that we want to live alongside them. As we talked about throughout the conversation, there's an inherent opportunity in moments that are full of change. Often the things that prevent us from changing are the influence of our social circumstances, the structures around us, that put a lot of pressure on us to stay the way that we are. And then alongside that, the ways in which we want to stay the way that we are, the ways in which we are sitting in warm bath water. And maybe it's not the best bath ever, but hey, it's warm and it's kind of comfortable. Standing up from the bath water, that can be really uncomfortable in the moment but it can actually give us the opportunity to be more the way that we want to be. We talked about two major psychological theories inside of this territory. The first is the theory of positive disintegration. This was coined by Kazimierz Dabrowski, and I really radically oversimplified the theory as basically being boiled down to the idea that moments of discomfort give us the opportunity for reflection. Particularly critical to the theory is this movement from believing in the structures we are given by other people about who we are versus finding our own authentic truth. And when that conflict starts to happen, it often comes with a lot of anxiety and discomfort. There can be even feelings of shame and guilt in a person for what they've done in the past and a lot of questioning of whether they are good people or moral people. 
Then alongside that, there's Eric Erickson's views of the stages of development. In Erickson's theory, there are these eight key stages that are all characterized by some kind of conflict. In preschool, people face the conflict of initiative and guilt, while in middle adulthood, they face the conflict of generativity versus stagnation. Whether you know the specific conflicts or not, it's all fine. Don't worry about it. But just the general idea is that in each stage of our life, we're going to face some conflict. And our ability to overcome and integrate it is going to, in large part, determine our ability to become increasingly happy, increasingly healthy individuals. So then we got into the nitty-gritty of the conversation. What can we do to limit the negative impact of things before, during, and after? Or, hey, even grow in positive ways from them. To highlight a couple of key points, Rick initially talked about the frameworks people have and the relationship that they have around moments of challenge. And inside of that, there's this distinction between normal range human experiences and abnormal experiences. And one of the points that Rick made was that there are a lot of painful experiences in life that are really quite normal. Over 50% of people will go through some kind of major disruption inside of their marriage. A very large percentage of people will encounter some kind of significant health challenge, particularly as they age. People get fired. People lose their relationships. People experience the death of loved ones. These are just parts of the human experience. And when we understand that these experiences, however painful they are, and they can be painful in profound ways, are normal parts of the human experience, it can really change our relationship to them. We can prepare ourselves for them. We can anticipate them. Not in an anticipatory dread kind of way, but more in almost a shrugging, you know, giving it up to the universe kind of way. These things are going to happen to me, and I just need to be prepared for them when they come. There are two things that have been particularly important for me in my own life, both during and after these challenging experiences, these major periods of disruption. The first is really coming to terms with the fact that I have to complete the emotional cycle. We might dissociate during a really hard time. We might need to move directly into action. We might need to kind of put our emotions on the back burner in order to perform in the ways that we are called to do when times get really tough. But those emotions don't go anywhere. We eventually have to process them. And a lot of the time, what happens to people is that they move from doing to doing to doing and they never go back and actually process those emotions. Then the second thing, both during and after, maybe with a little slant toward after, is having this very positive orientation around my ability to grow and change over time. Asking myself this key question, how do I want to be? Maybe even who do I want to be? And then believing that the possibility exists for positive change. Really coming to terms with the responsibility that I do have the ability to change myself in ways that I want to, and asking myself, hey, what do I want to get out of this experience, even when times are really tough? Is there some lesson that I can learn for the future that will, to use Rick's rather fanciful language, support my transformation from caterpillar into butterfly? We closed by talking basically about somatics and how these sensations can live in the body in different places. Speaking just for myself, there's absolutely a place in my body where contraction lives. I can feel it when I start to contract and stress and become anxious around an experience. And equally, there's a somatic sensation that's associated with opening, with being okay with change, 
with that stance of, hey, here's how I am now. But man, wouldn't it be cool to be something a little bit different in the future? And the more that we're able to tune into that sensation, the more that we can start to influence it and actively move ourselves from that stance of contraction and actively move ourselves from that place of contraction to more of a place of expansion. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, I just want to remind you about the Life After COVID Summit. It's May 21st to 23rd. I had the absolute privilege, truly, of interviewing 11 world-class experts in different territories, and the whole summit is focused at this key question, how can we prepare ourselves for whatever the new normal ends up being? What do we want to take out of this experience? How do we want to repair the wounds that we've suffered over the last year? And what are the opportunities that we have for the future? We don't know when we're going to be out of this. But as we enter this very hazy, gray, middle period around reopening, there's a lot of reckoning for us to do with ourselves, with our society as a whole. And I really hope that the summit is an opportunity for people to do that inside of themselves in a really supportive space, guided by these incredible thinkers on these topics. So you can go to covidsummit.net if you would like to sign up for it. I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. It is totally free. All of the content will be available from May 21st to May 23rd. It'll probably even be available for a couple of days after that. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd also really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even tell a friend about it. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I hope I'll see you this weekend at the Life After COVID Summit. Summit.